This is a good interview. And I hear that all the time. In fact, I just had a student in my office today. She had listened to season one and that was part of why she decided to apply for our master's of public administration program. Wow. And I know that was like the best thing I could have heard. (laughs) (laughs) But she specifically said that the episode with you was one of her favorites. So, Oh, awesome. That's so good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is a special bonus episode for season one. Tyler Schultz reflects on the Elizabeth Holmes trial and verdict. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. Just two weeks ago on January 4th, Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of the blood testing company Theranos, was found guilty of defrauding her investors out of almost a billion dollars. 29 witnesses testified for the prosecution. Over the course of 11 weeks, jurors heard from investors who were lied to, patients who got flawed test results, and employees who tried to raise the alarm. Day after day revealed devastating details, like how Holmes added the Pfizer logo to lab reports and gave investors financial projections that were riddled with false numbers. The seven days of defense testimony from Holmes herself weren't enough for her to escape guilty verdicts on four of the 11 counts that were brought against her. It was a long road to reach this point. Holmes founded Theranos way back in 2004, The Wall Street Journal article by John Kerry Rue, revealing the first details of fraud, was published in 2015. The guilty verdicts were the culmination of a months-long trial on charges that she was indicted for almost four years ago. But this was also a long road for Tyler Schultz, one of the three principal whistleblowers, along with Erica Chung and Adam Rosendorf. Back in episode four of this podcast, Tyler shared how difficult life became because he revealed damning details to the press. He was bombarded with legal filings and followed by private investigators. It was a long, lonely time for him. Well, now we get to hear from Tyler again, but this time without the cloud of uncertainty from the pending trial. I'm excited to share his thoughts and insights, not just because he was a potential witness, but also because he was a central figure in this sad saga that is now finally drawing to a close. Before I share the interview, I do want to let you know that we're hard at work on season two of How to Help. I have an incredible slate of guests lined up and I couldn't be more excited. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, so you automatically get new episodes when they become available later this year. But until then, I hope you enjoy this bonus episode with Tyler Schultz. Tyler, it's great to have a chance to talk to you again. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, happy to be here. So I have all kinds of questions. Watching the trial and kind of imagining what your experience was, especially because you were a potential witness, not just for the prosecution, but also for the defense, if I remember right. You're on the witness list for the defense. <laughs> I think which so, is yeah. odd. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But I was fascinated watching the trial and trying to imagine what it was like from your perspective. So I'm really excited that we can talk and, and get what that was like. I think all the people listening would really enjoy hearing what you learned during the trial that might have been surprising to you 
what thoughts or feelings you had during it and now especially that the trial is over and the verdict has been handed down. Yeah, um, definitely. <clears throat> so can we just start with that? I, the fact that you were a potential witness during the trial, what was your experience watching the trial as a witness that might be called on any given day? Yeah, so as someone on the witness list, I wasn't allowed to go in the courtroom to listen to any of the other testimony. So I was pretty much, you know, keeping up with the trial by reading articles and following reporters who are in the in the courtroom on Twitter. And that's a little bit strange in itself because this is, I don't even know what the right word is, but the, maybe the most consequential <laughs> thing that I've really done in, in my life. And this was kind of the the crescendo moment of the biggest event in my life. And I was kind of watching it through a Twitter feed. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit surreal. But then once they stopped calling witnesses, I was able to go. So I did attend one day of court. I went to one day of closing arguments. Mm. And I really actually enjoyed doing that because it definitely, it made it feel real. Seeing her walk into the courtroom is definitely different than seeing a picture of it. I didn't enjoy being there, but I think it was good for me. Yeah. For, for, for my mental health, it was better to actually be there and watch it happen than to just stare at a Twitter screen and watch it from afar. I'm sure it was a swirl of all kinds of conflicting emotions, especially because at the point of closing arguments, you still don't know what the outcome is. You don't know how the jury's going to decide on any of the given counts that were brought against her. Definitely not. And the day that I saw, I listened to the prosecution's closing arguments and then only a little bit of the defense's closing arguments. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the prosecution did a really good job. And I thought, you know, just after listening to their side, I thought this sounds so cut and dry. I don't know what the debate could possibly be. And I actually saw one of my friends there who I met through doing the HBO documentary. Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, I thought the same thing but you didn't see her cry on the stand. <laughs> so right. yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that part, but apparently she was very convincing when she took the stand. And, and in fact, it, the jury took a longer time to deliberate than I think anybody anticipated. They started their deliberations yeah. before the Christmas holidays came and then didn't arrive at their decision until after New Year's. Was that a stressful time for you during that during that window? I mean, I'm sure it was for a lot of other people involved, but how was that for you having to wait all this extra time that I don't think most people expected? Yeah, the waiting was not fun. I, I was thinking that the jury had a pretty good incentive to get this thing wrapped up before Christmas mm -hmm. and New Year's. Yeah. And I was disappointed that it wasn't. And you had to go, you know, sit through Christmas and New Year's having this kind of loom over our heads but luckily I wasn't the one on trial so I think it was yeah. probably easier for me than it was for maybe someone else <laughs> sure yeah of course so she was found guilty and just to to recount for those listening if you're not familiar with the details she was found guilty for four counts that were related to defrauding investors she was found not guilty for four charges about defrauding patients and then there were three other charges about defrauding investors that the jury couldn't agree upon. And so they didn't hand back a decision on those. It sounds like it's good. those are just going to be declared as a mistrial. And the prosecution probably won't bother bringing the case again against those three that the jury was hung on. What are your thoughts about the verdict on all these different counts? Yeah, so for me, I really wanted one guilty verdict. I really just needed one. Mm -hmm. And... Having four is fantastic. I, I feel really good that there were four guilty verdicts. 
I'm a little bit disappointed that they were all related to investor fraud and none related to the patients. Yeah. But I kind of understand it. I think it, it does kind of make sense because what she was what she was on trial for was not for actually harming patients. What she was on trial for was lying to patients in order to take their money. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that is actually what she was trying to do. I don't think she was, you know, lying to your average Joe in Phoenix to try to get his $30 that he paid for the blood test. I think that deploying this medical device on real patients was really a means to an end. And that means was to get hundreds of millions of dollars in investor money, not actually the money from the patients. So I think it does make sense, but it's still a little bit disappointing that there wasn't something related to the patients because at the end of the day, you know, the patients I think are the real victims, not Betsy DeVos and Rupert Murdoch. And what people like Erica and I did wasn't to protect the $100 million that the DeVos family invested or the $100 million that the Murdochs invested or the Cox family. I don't really care if they lose their $100 million or not. I I do care that they were testing an unproven medical device on real people. That's right. And there were some sad stories shared by some of the patient witnesses that the prosecution brought. Um, There were. There were women who were told they had miscarriages when they hadn't. There were people who were told they had HIV when they did not. Luckily, seemingly nobody died, which is great. And frankly, I think a little bit surprising that that no one was killed by something like this. But actually, my dad said something funny. He said, you know, Elizabeth Holmes should be thanking you because by you blowing the whistle on this, you you saved her from a murder charge. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Well, and, I mean, and the truth is she does face quite a bit of potential jail time with this. Each of these counts carries up to a 20-year sentence, so there might be 80 years. Now, to those listening, that very rarely happens that the maximum sentence is applied, and also it's rare that they're applied consecutively. Usually what happens is the time that you're sentenced with is served concurrently. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see. The sentencing is is an interesting issue right now, in fact, because... The prosecution has basically asked the judge to, to to delay the sentencing hearing until September, which means that she was found guilty in January, and nobody will even know what her sentence will be until nine months later. Well, her trial started in August, so between the start of the trial and sentencing is slightly more than a year, like yeah. a, a year and a month. It's a long time. It is a long time. Now, what I've read, and maybe you know more about this, is that the delay was in part because Sonny Balwani's trial is coming up. And for listeners, he was he was Elizabeth's boyfriend and president of Theranos. So the two of them together were leading the company. His trial has been delayed until March, I think, is when they're next trying to schedule yeah. it. Delayed because of COVID. The sentencing for Elizabeth was delayed, I think, because they wanted to do the sentencing concurrently with Sonny Balwani's assuming he's found guilty, which based on the experience with Elizabeth seems likely. Yeah, I think, well, I think part of it is, is that when the judge looks at sentencing, there are guidelines, but the judge does not have to stick to the guidelines. And the judge also doesn't have to stick to evidence that was presented in court. They can take in other factors that either make the sentencing more harsh or more lenient. So it's possible that he'll learn something. And it's the same judge between Elizabeth's trial and Sonny's trial. So it's possible that the judge will learn things during Sonny's trial that will influence his decision on what to do in Elizabeth's sentencing. So I think I think that's part of it. But I'm definitely not a legal expert. And I I, it seems a little long 
It does. It feels long perspective. To me too. As a former lawyer, I was never a litigator, but as a former lawyer, it seems like a long time away for sure. Yeah. Are, are there ways that you think Sonny's trial will go differently than what we saw with Elizabeth's trial? I really don't know. And I, I'm also, I will assume that I'm on the witness list for that. I'm actually not a hundred percent sure. So I'm, I'm as much as possible. I'm trying to not comment on what may or may not happen in Sonny's trial. That makes sense. And I won't press you. Plus sure. you might be, you might yeah. be on the defense witness list again. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and I won't ask you to comment on this, but for listeners, there was a, an email exchange between Tyler and Sonny which was especially pivotal. In fact, it was elements of that email that was originally sent to Elizabeth and then forwarded to Sonny that has been used as evidence. It was material that was used by John Kerry Rue in some of his original reporting. So there are some direct exchanges here between Tyler and Sonny that I expect will make an appearance during the trial, especially as it relates to what Sonny knew or should have known about the failure of these Edison devices. So, yeah, that will almost undoubtedly be included. <laughs> yeah. I will yeah, say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a lot of new information came to light during the trial, uh, including conversations between Elizabeth and Sonny, conversations they had about you, in fact. W what was it like learning these things, especially since you couldn't even be in the courtroom for them? What was it like learning these things? And what information did you learn that was especially surprising to you? Yeah, so, I mean, I I would say the worst part of this story for me happened in 2015. And so, you know, that's a little while ago now. I've pretty much put it behind me. I try not to think about it all that much. Yeah. And then learning new details about it, I, I would have to say, kind of brought me back to where I was in 2015. You know, some wow. of some of the details that came out made me pretty angry and made me feel attacked in the same kind of way that I felt like in 2015. So like some of those details where they had they had copies of checks that were written to private investigators and I knew that private investigators had been following me and but for some reason seeing the checks with, you know, the 100 I think the total was like $150,000 check to the private investigators to follow me and Erica. Like seeing things like that just made it all real all over again. Whereas before seeing those things, it was kind of, it almost felt like it was so far in the past that it almost like, it almost didn't happen. You know, that was somebody else who went through that, not me. And then seeing those things kind of brought it all back. And then similarly, just seeing their text messages around that night kind of, again, brought brought me back to that moment in time when, you know, I don't know. I probably shouldn't. I, I probably shouldn't comment too much because these are texts between Elizabeth and Sonny, and they'll probably come up in Sonny's trial. So actually, I, I'll, yeah. I'm going to stop myself right there and, and not yeah. comment on those text messages. Oh, I can totally understand. <laughs> I, thanks for sharing that. I hope it was at least a better experience this time because I remember in our last interview we talked about how isolating and lonely the experience was back in 2015. Oh yeah, totally. This time, I, I think you had a lot more people on your side. Yeah. <laughs> it was close to you and all over everywhere else, too. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I had to remind myself when I saw the checks and the text messages and I was getting all angry again. I had to think, this time it's different because she's actually on trial right now. So right. It's, yeah. I don't need to, even though I, I, I went into like that same fight or flight kind of feeling and, you know, I feel like, oh, I, like I need to fight and I'd have to remind myself, you don't, you already did <laughs> and, and it's your part's and now done she's on now trial because of yeah it. <laughs> so, yeah so yeah. that already happened all that stuff already happened 
there's nothing you should do or can do right now. A lot of people were surprised that Elizabeth even testified at all. In fact, yeah. there were only three witnesses for the defense, and really, she was the she was the only substantial witness. What do you think of that decision on her part to testify? I know there was a lot of controversy around the the kinds of things she testified. I'm sure some of those things are things that you feel like maybe you shouldn't comment on, and that's okay. But what what was your general reaction to the fact that she testified, and and maybe the content you feel safe talking about? Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all that she testified. I think it was her only real chance of of evading these guilty verdicts. And the one thing Elizabeth is really, really good at is manipulating people. And I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't there, but by all accounts, she was very, very compelling on the stand. She She laughed, she cried, she smiled, she made eye contact with the jurors. She was likable. And afterwards, the jurors even said that. They said it was hard to convict somebody who was so likable. Hmm. And that is exactly the type of show that she put on time and time and time again in order to commit this fraud in the first place. And it worked so well so many times that it's not surprising to me at all that she tried it again. And I was worried that it was going to work again. I was. When it comes to the prosecution and the case that they had to build before Elizabeth had the chance to testify, they called 29 witnesses, I think is what it was. That was a lot of evidence and went on for weeks. As you were following the news of this, what part of the trial do you think was especially impactful in getting the guilty verdicts? I think Erica did a really, really great job. And so Erica's one of the other whistleblowers who is the same age as me, right out of college. We worked there at the same time. Yeah. And I think she was a really good witness. I was, though, surprised to hear afterwards that the jury did not give her the highest credibility score that you could give. And they said that it seemed like she had an ax to grind. Mm. And I was shocked by that because she doesn't. Like, she's she's a very, very genuine person who wanted to do the right thing. She's not trying to grind any axes. And I think Erica had a really great response where she just said, this shows that there's still a bias against whistleblowers. Even when we've been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to be correct, um, there's still a bias against whistleblowers. I read that she had said that, and I absolutely agree. We're too quick to assume that for whistleblowers, this is about vindication or pride or, or any number of other sort of less admirable motives. But the reality is this, that, that both you and Erica, who were the two public whistleblowers up until the trial, out of the three that John Carew had, had relied on the most for his reporting, yeah. you were the two public ones. And right. it was not at all in your interest for this. In fact, both of you could have quietly left Theranos and never said anything like a lot of other people did. And you would be presumably living a happy life outside of the spotlight right now. Yeah, that would have been the the easy route. <laughs> I also about, think that, that that's maybe one of the reasons why I wasn't asked to testify um, mm. is because of that bias. And because I had so many interactions with Elizabeth that were outside of Theranos, outside the scope of the crimes. You know, I had Thanksgiving dinner with her. I had Christmas dinners with her. She was coming to birthday parties. I had a really personal relationship with her. And I feel like if those details had come out in my testimony, which they undoubtedly would have, the jurors would have looked at me and said, he's too biased to, to be trusted as a witness, maybe. 
that, that's that's my guess i don't know that's that's just kind of what i'm guessing based on what the reaction was to erica sure and i could see a prosecutor being worried about the the possibility of that but even that said a bunch of of you ended up in evidence <laughs> right yeah emails yeah. and and conversations and other details so so what what happened your interactions back in those days did come out it, it, as evidence for the trial and it seemed to have a strong effect there too so yeah they did luckily i think those emails really do speak for themselves and i i think i was really clear in in my emails specifically i would say this is an observation that i've made here is a bunch of data to support that observation and here's what i think we should do about it and i did that for a whole bunch of points and i think i was very clear i was very articulate in that email i i think i came across pretty unbiased in that email if anything i'm, I'm biased towards theranos in that email right. saying like i want to help you i'm i'm really doing this to help you and i think luckily again those emails i think speak for themselves and um I, they didn't need me to come in and, and comment on them because I think they were pretty clear. Yeah, I'm sure you look back and are really grateful that the much younger Tyler was so methodical at that yes. time, right? <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And now for a word from our sponsor. Every organization has a culture around ethics, whether or not it's deliberate. As a leader, if you're not cultivating the right ethical environment, you're taking your chances that the people around you will make wise choices. At Merit Leadership, we help companies of any size do regular exercises to build a deliberate culture of ethics. Our exercising ethics program reflects the reality that culture comes from what we do together, not from looking at a screen on our desk. Whether you work in a small team or a company with thousands of employees, we provide engaging ethics exercises that get people talking and sharing their values. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or visit meritleadership.com. This is a big question, and maybe you have a lot of thoughts and feelings to share on it or just want to give it a pass, but with Elizabeth now having been found guilty, what does it feel like to finally come to this point? It's been years in the making, and, yeah. and, really, and for the last two weeks, you've now finally been living it. What, yeah. what is that like? It feels really good. <laughs> I have to say it feels really, really good. I feel light. I feel lighter. I feel like I can breathe easier. I, I met Elizabeth when I was 20 years old and I'm 31 now. So this has become something that you just live with and it's just always in the back of your mind. You're, you're always carrying it with you. I think if you talk to most whistleblowers, they, they find it really hard to move on and mm -hmm. Luckily, I, I have been able to move on. I think I've done much better in, in that aspect than a lot of other whistleblowers, but it's still something you carry with you every yeah. single day. And to have these guilty verdicts, to have, you know, I had already been vindicated, you know, CMS and the FDA and the SEC had all, you know, done their investigations and concluded the same things that I concluded, but being vindicated in the court of law is huge totally yeah. huge even though i always knew i was right even though i was kind of already vindicated this is total and complete vindication and i 
honestly i just it's like i feel like i can breathe it, it feels really good i'm so happy to hear you describe it that way <laughs> yeah you know a lot of people think that when a whistleblower is vindicated that they basically now have this lifelong career of comfort and praise ahead of them but when you talk to whistleblowers or learn about them that tends to not be the case you don't graduate into a life of ease and plenty <laughs> after a moment like this. What is it like being in your shoes now that the that the book is closed on Elizabeth and, you know, probably soon to close on Sunny? It feels like I'm starting a new chapter and I'm really excited for what it holds. I'm I'm very optimistic about the future. I don't know. Obviously I don't know what what it will hold, but I'm sure it will be better than what I've been through or hopefully it it's better than what I've been through and you know, my 20s were pretty rough, but I'm I'm really looking forward to what the rest of my 30s hold. What are some of the things you look forward to as you think ahead now that this is behind you? Well, I'm, I mean, one, I'm just looking forward to like, to building a life. And I did, I got married last year and yeah. love my wife. My wife just finished her residency in pediatric dentistry. She's starting to work in private practice and she loves what she does. And so really I'm just excited to build a life with her. And then professionally, I've been working on my own diagnostic startup for for quite a, a little while now. Mm -hmm. But to be completely honest, I've learned the hard way through Theranos and through this startup that diagnostics is a really, really, really tough space to succeed in. And my startup will likely uh, soon meet the fate of most startups. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I'll be looking for the next thing to work on. And I'm, I'm excited to, to, to work on something else, whatever it might be. Yeah. Well, whatever happens, you should know that the fact that you didn't walk the same path that Elizabeth did is another testament to your character. Because yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of moments where you could have fudged, right? I'm sure there have been a lot of moments that you could have maybe misrepresented how your devices perform, misrepresented revenue opportunities, all kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. It's actually a little bit funny because I, I, I do have, I don't, not quite sympathy, but I understand a little bit how Silicon Valley could have created an Elizabeth Holmes because mm. as a CEO pitching a company, you, you realize that there's pressure every single day to exaggerate things. And yeah, it's hard to resist that pressure and you do it once and it, it works in your favor and you get applauded mm. for it and <laughs> you kind of keep doing it and it just spirals out of control and you end up in a situation like Theranos. Yeah. I mean, really, it's that old adage that lies breed lies, right? Yeah. That one little yeah. lie now requires more lies and it just compounds forever. <laughs> so it's better to nip it in the bud. Definitely better to nip it in the bud. You sleep a lot better at night that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but you do realize you're, you're in competition with every other entrepreneur and yeah. VCs want to have, want their entrepreneurs to have really, really big aspirations, really, really big revenue projections. And you know, revenue projections are all pretty much made up. You can easily get in the mindset where it's like, well, they know it's in the future. They know it's made up. I'm just going to create these astronomical projections that aren't based anywhere in reality so that I can secure my next round of funding. But honestly, I think the good venture capitalists can see through that. And yeah. they saw through that with Theranos. You know, she did not get top tier VCs to invest in Theranos. Right. But the pressures are still there. How is your family feeling now that the trial is over? Family is feeling great. When it seemed like the verdict was going to come, my parents called me and said, we're celebrating tonight, whether she's found guilty or not guilty. You know, we're just going to celebrate <laughs> you, celebrate this whole ordeal being over. So 
come on down. <laughs> they oh, live about so an hour south of me. So then after the verdict came out, my wife and I headed down there and my brother was making homemade pizzas and my dad found some really old champagne in my grandfather's basement and we decided to <laughs> open it and it was great. It was a perfect night. What a, what a fun memory. Okay, well, I just have one last question I want to ask you. Imagine you could go back in time and talk to the young Tyler Schultz. <laughs> the moment right before you're sending this pivotal email to Elizabeth, because <laughs> that really was the moment that kind of broke all of this wide open, was the decision to send that email. What would you have told your younger self in that moment? I mean, this is going to sound really lame, but what I would have said is hold off for a week, go talk to a lawyer and figure out what you can and cannot take out of Theranos, whether it be data, emails, whatever, hmm. and figure out who you can show it to without suffering severe consequences. Because what I didn't know is that there are protected whistleblower channels at the, S yeah. at the SEC that I didn't know existed. And I wish that I had when, when I was going through this back in 2014, 2015. So even though that's kind of lame advice, talk to a lawyer <laughs> that, that would have been, that would have been my advice. I, um, I give that advice to people all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think it's lame at all. It yeah. Actually and at, quite the, wise. at the time I probably would have said like, oh, but a lawyer is going to cost me like $500 an hour. <laughs> I would have said that will be the best $500 you ever spend <laughs> in your entire life. Go do it. And this is actually a good opportunity for me to make one small plug because I am now yeah. working with a group called the Signals Network. And they essentially connect whistleblowers to all kinds of resources, whether it be to lawyers or to reporters or therapists or whatever the whistleblower might need. And they didn't exist when I went through this, but they exist now and they're doing really, really great work. They're actively helping whistleblowers today. So if they existed, I would have gone back in time and said, contact the Signals Network and they will find you the right lawyer, the right reporter, the right whatever you need to get through this. That's so fantastic. And and I really do want to emphasize that. I don't know how many people listening are facing the, the risk of being a whistleblower, but you really do need help. Going it alone is treacherous. And the way you came through is notable in part because it's relatively unique. And yeah. it, really, it really shouldn't be unique, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you really have to make life-changing decisions in a vacuum. And it's really hard to make those types of decisions in a vacuum without sounding boards. Like you are alone. <laughs> you are very alone and you, you shouldn't be, you, you need to find the right people to talk to. And those people are lawyers. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I know some whistleblower lawyers and they're great people. So don't get yeah. scared off just because they're lawyers. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of lawyers that I very, very much dislike from this story, but there are also a lot of lawyers that I really do like from this story. So for every evil lawyer, there is also a really good one. Yeah, that's very true. Well, let me just say thank you again. This was so fun talking to you, especially in a way that could be celebratory. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> this would have been a much longer conversation if they were all not guilty. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would have had to overcome my disappointment before I could have reached out. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, you know, I'm delighted it's with a just outcome that we get out of this conversation. I echo this because I've talked with lots of students in sharing your story and I know all of them would be just delighted to know that 
you get to celebrate now too. So yeah. 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 Feeling really good. It's That's good wonderful. to celebrate. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks Tyler. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Great talking to you as well. Okay. Bye. See you next time. I'm so grateful for Tyler taking the time for our conversation. And I'm so happy for him to have finally made it through this experience. His courage and dedication to telling the truth have paid off in a way that I hope everyone finds inspiring. I've told him before that he'll be a topic in ethics classes for decades to come. An example of integrity that everyone should know. We're grateful as always to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to the Pleasant Pictures Music Club for the music. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're hard at work on season two, and I've got to say, it's going to be fantastic. Be sure to subscribe so you can get episodes automatically when they become available. And if you're a new listener, check out season one. We cover everything from the neuroscience of altruism to working with basket weavers in Rwanda. You'll learn about humility, creativity, and how to find your calling. Listeners from around the world have tuned in, and all of our past episodes are available in your favorite podcast app. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been a special bonus episode of How to Help.